This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Dr. Paolo Caroli. He is lecturer of criminal law in the Faculty of Law at the University of Turin in Italy. We will be discussing his newly published book, Transitional Justice in Italy and the Crimes of Fascism and Nazism, published in New York by Routledge 2022. Paolo, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's it's a honor for me to be discussing this with you uh, and to be hosted by you today. To begin, can you kindly tell us a bit about yourself? Can you tell us a bit about your personal background and your intellectual journey? Sure. Well, I am, as you said, I am Italian. I am a criminal lawyer. Um, and I spent the last, uh, I, I should say, uh, the last 10 years, more or less 10, 12 years um, between Italy and Germany, uh, where I've been working first of a, as a PhD student, then as a postdoc, and now as a lecturer at the University of Turin. And um, although I am a criminal lawyer, uh, I've always been interested in this interlacement between law and history and collective memory. Uh, there are many uh, different relationships between these uh, different notions because law, criminal law can have an impact on collective memory in terms of how the complexity of history is read or reduced. And on the contrary, memory can be pressing on, on criminal law in order to have maybe protection through law. Let's think of uh, those law that criminalize historical denialism, for instance. So this was always my object of research. And in particular, I was interested in uh, transitional justice, which for those who are not familiar with this academic field, which is becoming more and more popular in these days, uh, this can be defined probably as an interdisciplinary field which um, deals with this full, with a full range of processes and mechanisms that are associated with a society's attempts to come to terms with the legacy of large-scale past abuses. Could be abuses committed within a war, or during a dictatorship, for example, or nowadays, 
uh, also we use transitional justice for uh, in order to deal with past abuses in established established democracies such as colonial crime, uh, racism, and transitional justice can uh, include uh, law and criminal law, but also non-judicial uh, processes or cultural elements, constitutional elements. Um, think of all the debate that uh, we are witnessing nowadays, for, uh, for example, concerning monuments and statues connected to past uh, abuses. And so within this scenario, uh, that was what led me to the, the topic of my research because I was very interested in this field. And I did realize that although there was a major literature uh, in relation to post-World War II transitions, for example, of course, surrounding Germany, surrounding Japan and so on, there was a major blind spot that was the Italian experience of uh, transitional justice that had been ignored, uh, not only by criminal lawyers, but in general by transitional justice scholars. Um, and that caught my attention, so to say, and that what, what I tried to do is to apply this dogmatic lens of this field to the Italian experiences, uh, because, um, because uh, transitional justice it's a bit different from ordinary justice because we deal with uh, mass crimes within, we deal with crimes that are connected to a political status or ideology. We have to do with an overlap of different legal regimes because some type of conduct might be uh, even legal in, in a specific context and illegal from a different perspective. Um, and so, and most importantly, while in ordinary times, justice, criminal justice in particular, is a backward looking mechanism that, uh, so to say, um, guarantees uh, stability by uh, providing a response to something that was committed in the past. In this delicate, hyper-politicized context of transition, Justice also needs to enable a transition to democracy. So we don't, do not only have the claim for justice, but we also have the claim for peace, the claim for truth, the claim for stability, the coming conflict. And that's my, my main interest, so to say. Can you put the subject matter that you present in this book in historical context for us? Can you provide some background as to the political, social, and domestic context within Italy during which your research topic sure. unfolds? Sure, Th thanks for asking this, Ari. Um, I think, well, just for, maybe also for those who are not so familiar with the history of Italy, um, well, the, fa the fascist regime came into power in 1922 through a coup. And it lasted in power until 1943. Uh, during this 20 years of dictatorship, many crimes have been committed, not only towards political opponents, but also in the colonies 
Uh, we have terrible crimes committed in Libya where we have one of the first uses of the word concentration camps that it's documented. Uh, we have uh, terrible uh, massacres com uh, against the civilian population committed in Ethiopia. Uh, mass execution, sexual crime, use of uh, forbidden weapons such as lethal gas, um, and also crimes against other civilian populations such as in Spain during the civil war in the invasion of Albania. And then right after the entry into World War II, also the uh, crimes committed in the Balkans uh, that were not as bad as those by the Nazi, committed by the Nazi, but still, uh, today using today lenses, we could call them international crimes without uh, any doubt. Um, and then between what happened in, on the 8th of September of 1943 is that Italy changed sides, so to say. So from being an ally to Germany and Japan, uh, Italy became a, a side an armistice with the allies and became a co-belligerent with the Allies. But from that moment until 1945, we have two years that we can define of civil war, where the most terrible crimes were committed. What happened was that Italy was divided in two. In the south, the king escaped to the south of Italy, and the kingdom in the, in the controlled just a small part of the south, that was progressively concurred by the Allies. But the north and the center of the country were occupied by the Nazi, the former Allies and now enemy, and controlled through a puppet state of Germany, the fascist Italian Social Republic. So in these two years, we have crimes committed by those fascists against the uh, anti-fascists, so terrible tortures, mass shooting, and so on. Then we have the crimes committed by the Nazi regime against the Italian civilian population, um, and, um, and in particular, women and children. This was the technique of, of the Nazi, uh, of the Nazi. And also, we have the problem of the qualification of the action committed by the resistance. So all these different groups of crimes uh, imply a different uh, legal regime, a different jurisdiction. So that's the very complex scenario that they had to deal with. Crimes committed by the Nazi against the Italians, crime committed by the Italians during the dictatorship in Italy and abroad, included colonial crimes, crime committed by the fascists during these two years of German occupation, and then the resistance, of course, how does the, the action, how, do, um, how does criminal law see the action of the resistance? So a quite complex, but at the same time, fascinating, fascinating topic of research for me, I would say. Thank you so much for sharing. Can you, kind, you. Can you kindly summarize your book for us? What are the main themes and ideas that your book conveys? Okay, so I, I try to, because, uh, well, it's, 
I should also say that this book is the result of, of 10 years of research, almost 10 years, because I've started researching on this topic in 2013, and I published this book last year, so it's still 10 years. And, um, well, first of all, my main task was actually to describe this scenario, in, not only in historical terms, but also in legal terms. Uh, what I just said to you, what kind of crime uh, are involved, uh, what kind of law could have been applicable, uh, how many trials we had, those who were prosecuted, those who were not persecuted, and so on. So this, my first task is the description of this scenario. And then I have a particular focus on fascist crimes, so crimes committed by Italian perpetrators in Italy, so not the colonial crimes and how they were um, they were qualified by criminal law. And then subsequently, how the power of clemency that took the form of an amnesty, uh, the so-called Togliatti amnesty, how it uh, was applied to those crimes. Then I try to detach from the pure criminal law perspective and to evaluate the transition of, as a whole. How was this use of criminal law and um, this use of uh, amnesty, how was it connected to the general transition? For example, in terms of bringing to a peaceful and democratic country, but also in terms of creating a collective memory of those crimes, in terms of providing compensation to the victim. And in the end, I tried to make connection with the choices that were taken back then to the choices that are taken today that still have to do with that past. Decriminalization of um, the fascist gestures and symbol, the, um, the prohibition of uh, historical denialism, the, um, the memory of the Holocaust in Italy, the commemorative days of the Holocaust. Uh, what impact has the had the choice on today and how today can still deal with that past in terms of things that were not done back then? Because in the end, I realized that the Italian experience of transition of of uh, transition from fascism and World War II is not closed yet. There are many things that haven't been done and that still can be done. Of course, the criminal prosecution is not possible anymore because everybody is dead, but the uh, field of transitional justice has, has um, given us other tools that can be used um, that go from um, truth commission to um, discussion of monuments, discussion on names of the streets, uh, on school books, on reparation. Some initiatives have been done recently, in particular, in connection to the Black Lives Matters movement, the Me Too movement. I think, for example, of the reparation in uh, relation to the victims of uh, sexual crimes in Ethiopia. We also have bottom-ups initiatives that can be taken, uh, that are taken, for example, still in relation to colonial crimes from NGOs, from, from local group of students that deal with this past. So there are things that can be done now and still um, 
that's still required to be done, in my opinion. That's why I would like to stress on that, that this book is not an historical book. It still it departs from the historical perspective, but also to deal with issues that are very relevant in the present. And I don't think that they're relevant just in Italy, because uh, I tried to use as much as I could uh, the application of comp legal comparison. I discuss Spain, I discuss South Africa, but I think this issue that I just mentioned, dealing with the past, historical denialism, discussion of monuments, colonial crimes, these are topics that are much discussed in many, many countries right now. Although every country has its peculiar situation, but I think this could help bringing these the discussion forward in also in different countries. What is your book's contribution to the study of trans transitional justice? Um, well, on the one hand, as I was telling you right now, I think that even, even readers that are not Italian, that are not interested particularly in the, in the specificities of, of Italy, they can they can learn some lessons i think that they can apply to their own country in terms of what has been done what has not been done i do criticize also um, some way in which the eu implemented the memory of the holocaust in 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 italy in the early 2000 and how i do argue in the book that the, not, of course, the memory of the Holocaust, but the way in which it was implemented, how this in turn contributed in Italy to a self-absolution of the Italian society instead of growing uh, accountability and responsibility from the Italian society. So I think this can be generalized. And I also think that um, my discussion on amnesty can really uh, be interested in, in general right now because the amnesty has always been seen as a taboo in the transitional justice discussion uh, because for many reasons, because in many years, amnesty has been used in particular in Latin America as a tool uh, for impunity by those, by those in power. Um, so, why, whereas in the past, uh, why those amnesty were enforced in many countries, uh, the transitional justice uh, scholarship had to develop different mechanisms to deal with the past, starting with the commission, for example. Nowadays, we have grown such a lack of trust toward politics that starting from victim groups, uh, starting from Amnesty International, which is Amnesty in its own name, there is a distrust in Amnesty because there is a distrust in politics in uh, when it comes to dealing with transition. And on the contrary, I try to have a much more practical and constructive approach to Amnesty because I think the, that the idea that... Um, just law has to deal uh, with uh, those kind of crimes. And with this transition, it's a very idealistic approach. 
that can lead to um, to a standstill in its illusion that was more typical of the 90s, I would say, that particular historical moment. So now I suggest that there can be room for scholars to build uh, some boundaries. So to accept that we can use uh, amnesty as a political tool, but we have to ask for something else in exchange for that. We have to set boundaries. We have to regulate the way amnesty is used and, and constructed. So I'm not saying that I'm in favor of amnesty and not in favor of law. What I'm saying is that in my book, I try to build a much more complex and constructive approach that tries to combine law with politics. Can you tell us about the legislative decree of the Lieutenant of the Realm of 14th September 1944? Can you tell us about its statutes and its repercussions? Yeah, sure. Uh, so that's a big part of my uh, of my book because this is the law that introduces the so-called fascist crime. So three crimes that had to qualify and criminalize and then punish the uh, crimes committed by the fascists. Um, what is, I think, interesting is that Italy dealt with the legal qualification of fascist crimes in 1944, when the conflict was still ongoing. It would have taken another year uh, to have uh, the liberation and the defeat of fascism. And this has to be bear, uh, bear in mind because, um, you know, in, in law, and particularly when it comes to, to this kind of crimes, the qualification of the conduct is never neutral. It always conveys a, an interpretation of the complexity of, of history because uh, criminal law in itself is a simplification of the complexity of reality. So we have to bear in mind that the government that had that was issuing these laws was this small government in the South that wanted to send a message to the allies showing that Italy had changed sides, but also to the Italian population showing that that was the real Italy and the, king, the, the Republic in the North was, uh, was not the real Italy. They were collaborating with the enemy. And we have to keep in mind this political meaning because the choice of the words in, in law is never neutral. I mean, we see this nowadays in the two ongoing conflicts in Ukraine and in Israel and Palestine, where all the parts in this conflict try to invoke the word genocide to define what the others are doing to them. So we see how the, the words, the label that we put on things that are happening is important. It implies political uh, meaning. Um, somehow it's perceived that calling one thing uh, crimes against humanity is not as is not the same as calling that thing genocide. So the choice of the word, it's very, it's the label, it's very important. And here mm, we have three three crimes. The two refer to the crimes committed during the dictatorship. And the third one is the crime of collaboration with the enemy. Let's 
for example, let's just focus on this one. In my book, I do contest the choice of calling this crime collaboration. We use this term in general in Europe to describe the many puppet states that were established by the Nazi. But in Italy, the, this state was a prosecution of a 20th dictatorship. So, yeah, so the fact that it was called collaboration, although th this was the crime that it was in fact used to prosecute and punish those the worst, uh, the worst type of conducts committed in these two years. But, you know, calling this collaboration, it implies that the focus of this crime is having betrayed Italy collaborating with the enemy, which it can also be correct, but it overshadows the fact that the real focus of these crimes is that these were terrible crimes against individuals, torture, mass rape, uh, mass execution. And this should have been the focus in order to reflect the atrocity of this crime. But putting the focus on collaboration, it's, it was functional to this kingdom of the South to, to underline the fact that this kingdom was illegal, but it has contributed, unwilling, it has contributed to reshaping the historical memory of those atrocity has been has been just a matter of betrayal of the country has been a matter of opportunity so you see even the choice of how we name a crime no matter how many people are prosecuted and punished the name that we use has an impact on the collective memory that results from those criminal trial contributes to a to an interpretation or a distortion of those facts. What was the Toliatti amnesty? Can you explain its history? Yeah, sure. So what I was mentioning now is the prosecution of this of these fascist crimes that, as I said, started when the conflict was still ongoing. We have almost 20,000 trials. But then just 14 months after the end of the war, uh, Palmiro Togliatti, the leader of the Communist Party, and so the main representative of anti-fascism, issued an amnesty to pardon the fascists. In no other European country, we have such a quick use of amnesty, just 14 months after the end of the war. And what's interesting is that it was a, a strong political choice to not to look backwards and to look forwards. So uh, to uh, to privilege the building of a peaceful and democratic anti-fascist country instead of closing the book with the crimes. But it's also interesting that on paper, the amnesty had to be applied only to the less serious crimes and only to those who were not in charge. So it was a partial amnesty. What happened in reality is that this amnesty was applied to almost everyone. So in the book, I try to analyze how did, did it happen? There are some elements that show that in many cases, the judiciary had to be blamed 
because the judiciary that was asked to apply this amnesty had not been had not undergone any lustration, any purge. So they were still um, sympathizing with the fascist regime. At the same time, I also highlights that there are some specific part of the text that show a responsibility of the legislature. And then there is also debate among historians if the legislature, why did Togliatti write such a bad amnesty? Was it because he was uh, in a hurry to do so or because he really knew that no one could be punished in that situation and uh, he wanted somehow the judges to, to be responsible for that. So he gave the judges an instrument to reach this goal. So it's it's a very fascinating uh, example, I think, because on the one hand, we have this strong political choice, this will of taking responsibility for the transition. On the one hand, we have this hiatus between what's written on paper and what happens in the reality. And it also helps us showing the complexity of the many actors that operate in a in a transition. Who was Palmiro Togliatti? Can you introduce us to him? Can you tell us about his biography? Well, Togliatti, it's a quite interesting figure. He was the uh, the member of the, um, sorry, the secretary of the uh, Italian Communist Party. It was really a very um, strong political figure, but also with a very pragmatic approach. She was normally opposed to the view of, of Antonio Gramsci, which was uh, much more um, theoretical. And Togliatti had, uh, I mean, we could use probably the, the word realpolitik, uh, which was uh, developed later to explain his attitude, very pragmatic attitude. In fact, he's the only uh, secretary of a communist party that uh, remained uh, secretary until his death uh, during the year of of Stalin. No other, no other um, secretary uh, managed to do so. And of course, in order to obtain so, he was a man also of compromise, knowing when he he had to give up the ideals for a very practical uh, solution. Uh, and surely there are some shadows in his past as well. But in this moment, he really took a very strong responsibility for the Italian transition when he had to make the very basic choice between looking backwards and looking forward. So he thought that giving up on punishment uh, could have been a prize for that it was acceptable in exchange for um, the build an anti-fashion constitution, the building of a democratic Italy where all the parties, even the Communist Party, could be involved in the democratic life. Um, he took a very strong choice that was not approved by many of of this uh, of his um, of the member of his parties. But um, I should say this: uh, when I started working on, on the Italian experience, I was very critical about Togliatti 
and about his amnesty because of this hiatus that I mentioned between what's on paper and what happened in the reality. In the end, I do realize that probably in this context, uh, he really had not many other options and he was also very courageous in, in taking this responsibility on himself. Um, whereas I am much more critical to the following generation uh, that didn't find other ways different from uh, criminal justice to deal with the crimes committed by fascism. Somehow the following generation interpreted the lack, the amnesty as amnesia. So the lack of persecution as a sort of oblivion for the past. Um, but it, it's criminal law, and this is something that I really would like to stress that uh, there is there are always wrong expectation towards criminal law on the one hand and then towards amnesty on the other. Yes, criminal law under some circumstances can provide an important contribution to historical truth, to the building of, of, um, of a collective memory. But criminal law, justice, and amnesty, on the other hand, they are not the tools in uh, to which um, a transition is accomplished. They are rather one facet of the tools that contribute to producing uh, a quite complex process, which must always also involve extrajudicial mechanism, as well as cultural debate, social debate. And so on the contrary, in Italy, it was somehow considered that since this chapter where uh, was closed. So since the uh, the possibility of persecuting and punished ended because of the amnesty, then there was no other way to deal with the past, to deal with those crimes. And that's something that I really contest in my book. What is your book's contribution to the history of World War II in Italy? Um, well, that's a very, of course, <laughs> A very big question. I I'm, I don't know if um, if the book in itself provides a major contribution. Uh, well, I should say that um, there were no other before. There were no other comprehensive analysis of all the uh, transitional justice mechanism that were uh, used um, dealing with the different types of crime. So in these terms, I should say that it was at least the first to, to do so and to provide a, a, to provide a comprehensive view on that. Um, but I hope this book also helps us seeing what I was mentioning before, that this is not at all a closed book, that there are uh, many uh, many crimes that have never been dealt with, that there is no awareness of those crimes, and that there are other options to deal with these crimes that are still at stake. There are still um, possibility to build in uh, uh, some form of accountability, not individual accountability anymore, as I was mentioning, but there's still a lack of knowledge 
in the society of what actually the fascist regime did um, for many reasons in post-World War II Italy, there was not interest in facing those crimes. Uh, on the one political side, because maybe they were an accomplice to those crimes or they were just indifferent where these crimes were being committed. And from the other hand, uh, the fact that we did have a major uh, resistance movement um, didn't make that political side a feeling as if those crimes came from their society, because I mean, they were the ones who fought fascism also with their life. So um, this creates a sort of double myth. The fact that only Mussolini was to blame for everything bad that happened and that Italy had created, healed itself uh, from this disease of, of fascism. Uh, and this implied that there was a lack of uh, interest in, in feeling those crimes as product of our society and then asking ourselves, how was it possible that our society brought to this kind of crimes? What can we do in order to avoid that different but similar mechanism produce other uh, other um, terrible events in the future. Um, and this happened, for example, in Germany, but in Germany, the situation was very different. We had a clear support for the from the majority of the population. Uh, we had uh, resistance was a very, very minority phenomenon. Um, Germany was clearly defeated after World War II, whereas Italy was on the side of the defeated, but also on the side of the victors, because we fought together with the allies against fascism and Nazism. So it's much more complex. And I hope this can, my book can provide a contribution to that, to reopen the discussion. What was the Selba law? Why is it significant? Uh, this is also interesting in terms of connection between the past and the present. Uh, the Shelba law is uh, the first law, uh, it was issued in 1952, uh, that criminalizes the use of Nazi and fascist, fascist in particular, symbols and gestures. Um, we have always a discussion in Italy, why is it possible that we still have gadgets sold to tourists with the face of Mussolini, that we still have a widespread use of, of the Roman salute of symbols that is not punished. And one of one answer that we always hear is that we need more criminal law, we need new norms. In reality, again, I want to show the limits of criminal law. Um, it's interesting to see what, what I analyzed in my book is the, differ the difference between the, uh, the case law on uh, the Roman salute in Italy and in Germany. Interesting enough, in Italy and in Germany, we have two norms that criminalize uh, fascist and Nazi gestures that are almost the same, almost the same. But the application is the opposite. What do I mean? In Germany, 
the um, or better, let's start from Italy. In Italy, we do think that although the law says that uh, gesture is criminalizing itself, we cannot punish it unless in the specific circumstances, this public use of fascist gestures can lead to a danger of reestablishment of the fascist party. So it really depends on the situation in which takes place. And in Germany, on the contrary, it's considered what we criminal lawyers called an abstract, uh, an abstract danger, which means that each use of a Nazi symbol of gesture, even if it's used by a rebel skinhead, by a student, uh, it should be punished because if we don't, then tomorrow that same symbol and gesture can be used by somebody else with a very Nazi aim. So why, how is it possible having almost the same norms, the same law uh, in, in these two statutes in Italy and in Germany, uh, we have opposite application? And the answer is, from my point of view, that it has not to do with law. The answer has to do with the perception and the knowledge of the crimes in the two society. In Germany, if we think of Nazism, for the majority of the people, automatically the majority of the people thinks to the concentration camps, to the crimes committed by the Nazis. In Italy, when we think of fascism, you might see this in a good or in a bad political way. But if you ask the people what kind of crimes did actually fascism commit, there is not this automatic association as it happens in, in Germany, because there is a lack of confrontation and a lack of knowledge of those crimes. Um, there was a survey that was carried on uh, a couple of years ago um, uh, in, in the schools, in, in high schools in Italy, and they asked the students uh, about what did they know uh, about the racial laws that are the law that uh, introduced discrimination against the Jews in Italy in 1938. And the vast majority of them thought that the racial law, I think 80% of them, thought that the Russian laws were introduced in Italy by the Germans. When the, the, these Russian laws were introduced by Mussolini in 1938, and the Germans only occupied Italy in 1943. So this says a lot about this lack of knowledge, and it shows that criminal law can do really not that much if in the background, we don't have a social and cultural process of dealing with those crimes, which is much more complex than introducing just a new law, uh, criminalizing uh, fascist symbols. Who was Marco de Paulis? Can you tell us about him? Oh yeah, that's, that's a very different story. Um, so we are switching here from, um, from um, fascist crimes to Nazi crimes uh, that are also part of my book. 
So we are talking about crimes committed uh, by the Nazi in uh, against the Italian civilian population mostly, and also against Italian militaries abroad. Marco De Paolis, who is still alive, is a, a military prosecutor, and he is the military prosecutor, the Italian military prosecutor, who uh, prosecuted and punished uh, almost sixty, uh, almost sixty uh, Germans between 2006 and 2013. So you might wonder why it happened so late. Why did we have those trials so many years after the fact? And this brings me to uh, another story that has to do with the prosecution of Nazi crimes and the story of the so-called Armoire of, sh of shame or cabinet of shame, uh, you might maybe have heard of. So, what happened in the case of Nazi crimes? One may think that Italy was very willing to prosecute and punish those criminals because, yes, with fascism it was more complicated because both victims and perpetrators were Italian. It was much more complicated. But here with Nazi crimes. Italians were the victims and Germans were the bad ones, so to say, that had committed terrible crimes. So one would imagine that we had, after the war, that we prosecuted a lot of Germans that committed really terrible atrocities. In reality, we did prosecute just very few of them, almost 13, more or less, and with very minor convictions. And why was that? So when we had really thousands of victims of, of, of terrible massacres committed by the Nazi in Italy, um, this, was a, this was not a legal choice, just like in the Togliati Amnesty. It was a very political pressure uh, from the Italian government not to prosecute and punish German criminals even if we had the right to do so based on the peace treaty. Why was that? For a very simple reason, because like we, because just like we had a right to prosecute and punish the Germans for crimes committed against Italians, other countries had a right to extradite, prosecute and punish Italians who had committed crimes in Ethiopia, in Libya, in, in Yugoslavia, most importantly, and we had many requests of extradition. The United Nations was having receiving requests of, of extradition. And Italy was very engaged in a political level, on a political level, not to extradite those people. And eventually, Italy succeeded, even though we had an obligation to extradite those militaries, since they were still very important in the Italian society, even after the fall of the fascism. We didn't want that, and we managed not to. But of course, the Italian government said, well, if we do not want others to prosecute our war criminals, we can't be the first to prosecute German war criminals because we will give a bad example. And uh, so the pressure was so high that in 1960, not only for many years, this trials were slowed down and many of them were not prosecuted. But 
1960, the military prosecutor of Rome, uh, Enrico Santacroce, took 695 files documenting Nazi war crimes committed in Italy, put all these files in a, in a cabinet, so in an armoire, turned this around with the, with, the, uh, with the doors facing the wall, and this cabinet was forgotten for ages until it was randomly found in 1994, creating a major scandal. Uh, there was a commission of inquiry. And so just many years later, those trials against the Nazi criminals took place. We have very important trials, in particular those for, for Mazzabotto, for the Fosse Ardeatina massacre, for the Santana di Stazzema massacres that took place uh, from the middle of the 90s, but most importantly, after the, the 2002, I would say, until 2013. This also implies another issue that is too probably too complicated, too long to be discussed, which is the fact that although all these old German criminals were uh, sentenced in Italy, Germany never extradited those war criminals and they all died in their in their beds in, in Germany. What was the armoire of shame? Can you describe it in greater detail? Yeah, uh, so this armoire exactly was um, really, it was a cabinet, it was a wooden cabinet when all these uh, all these files, 695 files were hidden. Uh, to, uh, to avoid the prosecution of these Nazi crimes, because we could not give the bad example of starting prosecuting uh, those uh, those criminals. If we uh, if we were the ones prosecuting German criminals, then other countries would have wanted to prosecute uh, Italian war criminals. Yugoslavia, in particular, was very keen on on prosecuting our war criminals. And so we, uh, for just for political pressure, so we didn't have any amnesty, we didn't have any, any formal uh, justification, but simply the files were hidden in this cabinet, not to prosecute these Nazi criminals who had committed really terrible, terrible crimes. And um, very interesting enough also, in order to gain this legitimation uh, with the US and the and the UK and to avoid our Italian militaries to be extradited and prosecuted, not only the Italian government pushed for the slowdown of this of these trials against the Germans and in the end for for hiding all these files in this in these cabinets, but also uh the Italian government asks journalists to, to look for stories of private individuals who had saved Jews during World War II. So not fake stories, real stories of Italians who had, like um, Guelfo Zamboni and Giorgio Perlasca and many others, who had take, taken a risk and hidden Jews uh, when, in particular, after the German occupation, so when there was a risk of, of being sent to the concentration camps. 
Uh, and why was, was, was the Italian government so interested in those stories? Uh, because they wanted to show that yes, we were bad, we were fascists, we were on the wrong side at first, but in the end we were good people. So yes, we had the Russia law, yes, we had discrimination, yes, we had many Italians who collaborated with the Nazi in hunting the Jews, but we also had individuals who decided on their own to protect the Jews and to send to save them. So if we tell these stories, then the, the first part maybe will be forgotten. So we end up being remembered as the good Italians and people will forget about the bad side. And so probably they will be not so interested in extraditing our war criminals. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. What is amnesic amnesty? How is it different from other forms of amnesty? Can you explain the meaning of this term, as well as the different variations on amnesty that your book interprets? Sure. Uh, well, this is a, a, an amnesty. Uh, this is a, a, a name that I made up actually, um, because I wanted to distinguish between the different form of amnesty. Because you said, as I said before, there is normally a uh, a very generalized discussion concerning amnesty being good or bad. But behind the word amnesty, there can be very, very different kind of laws. There can be a blanket self-amnesty, as in the case of Chile, or there can be a very useful and complex use of amnesty, as in the case of South Africa. So there are really various forms of amnesty. Some of them are a tool to impunity and oblivion, and others can be used as a tool on the opposite to reach accountability, a different form of accountability that doesn't imply punishment, but still a form of accountability, such as in the notorious South African example. So um, I do think that uh, amnesic amnesty is the best, um, the best terms in order to describe the uh, to describe the Italian experience of transitional justice. In particular, I, I make a distinction between the Spanish model and the Italian model. In Spain, we have a model that I call oblivion amnesty, where there was a deliberate choice to um a deliberate choice not not only not to prosecute and to punish but also uh to uh to forget there was a deliberate choice not to use the past as a political uh political uh weapon uh, on the contrary um i think that italy has not really to do with um, 
with with a deliberate choice for oblivion, but rather with this amnesia, the fact that something were forgotten through the specific ways in which amnesty operated. In particular, the aspects that were forgotten coincided with the Italian responsibility, with the, 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 the most uh the most form the form of responsibility they were most connected with the product of our society so we don't really have oblivion but we have a distorted memory that results from the application both of criminal law and of aspect and, and of amnesty so both criminal law and amnesty contributed to the distortion of amnesty of of uh, memory and in the end, to a very convenient uh, memory uh, that resulted from that, a very self-acquitting memory of fascism and World War II, I would say. And this contributed also to a very divisive uh, memory of, of World War II and fascism. Even today, the label fascism and anti-fascism are used uh, as a weapon in the political debate, but without awareness, or as I was saying before, awareness really of what happened, of the kind of crimes that uh, took place in these 20 years of dictatorship and in the two years of civil war. So we don't really have oblivion because these topics are very present in our society. We have amnesia, which is, partly different than Oblivium, I would say. Can you elaborate on the differences between Spain and Italy in regard to the roles that amnesty played in the respective societies? How did the different histories of Italy and Spain reflect the different approaches to amnesty? Yeah, sure. Of course, uh, I also should say that when I talk about Spain, I'm I'm not referring to the debate nowadays on amnesty, but to the 1977 amnesty that was introduced in relation to uh, the crimes committed during the civil war and uh, during the Francoist dictatorship. Um, from a superficial point of view, one could argue that the situation in Spain and in Italy are quite similar because we have an amnesty, we have not shared memory of the of the crime, but Spain still remains a unique moment. First of all, it has to be said that while our Italian amnesty uh, was issued just 14 months after the end of the war, uh, the um, the Spanish amnesty was almost 40 years distant from the most cruel crimes of the civil war. Um, and But in, in Spain, we have a very different legitimation, first of all. It's the first democratic parliament, and not the government, but the democratic parliament that unanimously decides to uh, not to punish and to forget. And although there have been many attempts to contest this model, uh, it still is in force nowadays. Um, whereas in Italy, there is not the strong will 
of dealing in this term with this past. At least in Spain, we have a very strong political choice, which is taken by a parliament, which is the representative of the people. Here we have more, much more uh, uh, hypocritical approach. We have at first a very strong response to criminal law, then the application of an amnesty that uh, was supposed to be partial, and in the end, it, it was a general blanket amnesty. Then we have uh, some things that are uh, conveniently forgotten. Other aspects are uh, forgotten because of our political pressure. So we have a much more complex situation. I also I say that uh, Italy, in contemporary Italy, resembles ancient Rome because you know in ancient Rome whenever an emperor wanted to buy a new city the new city was built on on the ruins of the previous one there was never a removal and a new start there was just a building on the ruins on the previous society without a real confrontation with the past and that's what's happening in Italy so the issue is still very present but it's very down under uh, the roots of our society. So to say, we still have to face what, what happened then. What is your book's contribution to the ways we think about amnesty and to the broader phenomenon of amnesty? What new light does your research shed on the phenomenon of amnesty? Well, I think that providing a classification of the different type of amnesty, showing the good and the bad side in practice, um, it, can, it can bring the discussion forward. Um, as I was saying, I think that the view of um, choosing law and criminal law as the only possible response to this kind of crimes uh, the inter-American approach, for example, that sees criminal law as the only possible um, tool to set an historical record of the past, that's nowadays not, um, not sustainable, um, if not uh, idealistic and naive. So we uh, still should, I think we should profit of this tool but not having this as a way, uh, as a tool for impunity, but as a tool uh, as um, for obtaining something in return. In the famous South African experience, amnesty was used as a tool for a social confrontation and for the building of the so-called rainbow nation. There is a discussion, there's been a discussion in the US on the possible use of amnesty and pardons in particular nowadays in relation to uh, structural racism and to what happened in Capitol Hill. So there can be a, a value of this tool if we manage to build a legal structure, to build, to build some limits, to build some background, some boundaries. Um, we, can really, we can really use this. Um, we have somehow the task to try to restore faith in the political dimension 
and in a scope for the operativeness of amnesty, while avoiding that political power employs it in a biased and self-acquitted manner. You write as follows on pages 244 to 245. The overlap between the crisis of politics and the management of political transitions and the rationale which substitutes politics with jurisprudence can create the risk of a theology of human rights, wherein, in other words, the protection of the human rights leads to denying the complexity of both the transition in general and of the opposing human rights at stake in the criminal trial as well, those of the victims and those of the accused. Can you elaborate on this observation for us? Sure. Uh, that's much connected to what I was just mentioning. Uh, my attempt is to, to build a middle way between this, uh, the tradition of politics that we're seeing in the 20th century, in the second part of the 20th century in particular, with this so-called third wave of democratization, where amnesty was used by politicians as a tool for impunity, to avoid accountability. Uh, I think of all the Latin American countries, for example. Um, but on the opposite, in the enthusiasm of the 90s, where uh, in the where we do the United States model didn't have any rivals, so to say, in the globe. Uh, po global political scenes where we didn't know the crisis of the Western capitalistic model and so on. There were, in this enthusiasm of, of back then, there was this idea that the age of impunity was over and a new age of accountability would start. Uh, that only in those situations, politics that had normally been the only um, actor uh, capable of dealing with the transition, uh, that politics could not have anything to say about this in general, that we would reach the opposite extreme, that only law could deal with, uh, with such phenomenon. And what we're witnessing in the world today is that the reality is much more complex than that. So we don't have now uh, a system uh, that has managed to, to uh, deal with each kind of crime that is being committed uh, in, in context of war crimes or in context of crimes against humanity and so on, that law didn't manage to, to be the only one, the only possible response Politics will always have its role and its say in the early transition. And probably this is not, uh, this doesn't not necessarily mean that politics uh, is a tool for impunity, because politics is exactly the place, should be the place, where different social interests at stake are considered. Uh, politics can have a very important role in balancing the claim for justice and the claim for peace, in balancing the claims of the victims with other, that are much legitimate, with other social claims that are equally relevant to guarantee um, a peaceful and democratic transition to democracy. Uh, 
Um, so I think that um, I think this we should avoid these two extreme. On the one hand, we, uh, we can have what I call the Kissinger extreme, uh, where he said that uh, politics should be allowed also to commit crimes for the good of the citizen. And we this is not acceptable anymore. But on the other on the other hand, the opposite hand, we have this extreme that law is the only response, retributivist, retributivist approach. Only criminal law is the possible response when it comes to this violation. Where there can be a solution in the middle. There can be, um, we can maybe as, as criminal lawyer, we can build um, a, a third way that accept a partial give up on punishment, but not in general in exchange for something else, in exchange for a peaceful transition, in exchange for other form of accountability, public confrontation, uh, truth commission, and other forms of accountability that can be found uh, and that can, be, uh, can lead us in exceptional situation to accept that we give up on punishment in exchange for something else. Can you tell us about the trial of Rodolfo Graziani? What lessons does it teach us? Oh, well, um, the, the story of Rodolfo Graziani is very long and, and interesting. Uh, I think that the main, the main thing that it teaches us is another example of how Italy never got to deal with many of the crimes that were committed during the dictatorship, uh, and in particular, in this case, with colonial crimes. Um, Rodolfo Graziani was uh, the vice roi in, in Ethiopia, and he is the man who was responsible for the most terrible massacres committed in, in Ethiopia. Um, he was tried uh, for his role in the fascist regime, but this trial did not include uh, crimes committed abroad. On the contrary, his uh, his role in the in the colonies uh, gave him a, a less severe punishment uh, because of the of what he had done for the country in Ethiopia, and um, in recent years. Uh, a regional right-wing government decided to build a monument to honor Graziani. There was a huge social debate, also because public money was used for that. In the end, the monument was built and then it was closed. So there was it was a it's a complex uh, history, but it tells a lot about how much. Uh, work there is left to do. Uh, is it possible that a person like Graziani that was proudly called the butcher because of the many Ethiopian that he killed um, is still considered a hero by a part of the society? Um, in, but as I said, this tells us that there are ways open. In recent years, the president of the Republic uh, was involved in some um, reparation with Ethiopia. Uh, the president Scalfaro sent back to Ethiopia a monument that had a huge political and historical value for them, for Ethiopians that had been taken by the fascists. Uh, 
um, President Mattarella, the current president, shook hands with the living uh, partisans that fought against the Italians. But there are also initiatives, uh, bottom-up initiatives for the civil society. I mentioned, for example, these uh, initiatives that it's, um, it's endorsed by a collective called Vuming. In There is a day in February when in Ethiopia, the victims of the Italian occupation are commemorated. On that day in Italy, those people um, put, uh, they, they look for uh, streets in Italy or monuments that are named after militaries who committed uh, crimes in Ethiopia. They go to the streets overnight and they hang banners with pictures and writing explicating to the people uh, who those military were and that they live in a street that it's named after someone who committed terrible colonial crimes against Ethiopian, against Ethiopian women, in many cases, sexual crimes as well. So this is a starting point. We had also uh, some initiatives um, in connection with the Me Too movement uh, that helped uh, get an awareness on how um, Ethiopian girls, sometimes even really little girls, were given to Italian soldiers as prize for their for their uh, victories. And so the terrible sexual crimes that were committed against Ethiopian little girls. So there is still much that has to be done and that can, can be done, uh, both in legal and non-legal terms. Can you tell us about the Fosse Ardeatine massacre? What transpired? Can you describe the course of events? What kinds of atrocities took place? Who were the victims and perpetrators? Okay, so you're taking me back now to the crimes committed by the Nazi against the Italian against the Italian citizens. The Fossa di Atene massacres is one of the two, the three main uh, massacres committed by the DSS in German in Italy. So in this particular case, the par Italian partisans had. Um, committing a, an attack in Rome against a group of SS, ki uh, killing 32 of them uh, with a bomb, and some others went to the hospitals. And so the um, Hitler and the General Mackensen in particular decided uh, that as a reprisal, how they called them, um, was uh, as a reprisal, uh, 10 Itali random Italians had to be taken for each German that had been killed. 10 Italians had to be killed for each German. So uh, there were three, uh, 32 Germans killed. And so this, um, the DSS in particular, um, in particular Commander Kapler, and um, and and his assistant Eric Pribke went uh, to the local jail where there were different kind of prisons. Prisoner, there were Jews, there were political opponents, there were partisans, and with the help of the fascist uh, uh, personnel of the prison, they took uh, ten Italians for each of these thirty-two. 
people that had been killed. In the meanwhile, from the hospital came the news that another German died. So Kapler uh, added other 10 um, Italians and then other five were added as a mistake. So in the end, 335 Italians, Italian civilians were taken to the escape and, and killed. 10 by 10, and each 10 had to, to stand over the corpse of the previous 10. And then 335 civilians were killed as a reprisal for this attack uh, against the SS. I do mention this story in the book because it's a very, it's a very interesting example about uh, what I called this, this amnesia and how we can't expect criminal law not to be influenced for the political uh, for the political scenario framework. I do confront in particular the trial uh, against Kapler that took place right after the war and the trial against Eric Pripke, which was found many years later in Argentina and extradited to Italy in the 90s. If we confront this two judgment, we have a very, very opposite result, uh, opposite consideration of the relevance of superior order as a justification. And we see how the interpretation is influenced from the cultural um, and legal framework of the judges. In the first case, we had judges that were military judges that were sympathizing with the with fellow soldiers with the hierarchy typical of the of an army in the other case we are in the 90s we have a very different uh, idea of what constitutes crimes against humanity what constitutes war crimes uh, we have a diff very different idea of how and if superior order should be evaluated. And so I think it's a very interesting example to witness the evolution of the Italian transitional justice to, to follow the long and complicated history of the Ardetin Cave massacre. Who was Gaetano Azzariti? Can you tell us about him? Uh, sure. Well, another example of amnesia and contradiction in this process. Um, I told you before that the Italy managed also with the contribution of the government to build this idea of Italians being good people, of being friends to the Jews, because some Italians saved Jews on their own initiatives. Yes, we did have Russian laws, but we didn't have deportation until 1943. And we conveniently forgotten that many Italians also helped the German find hunting the Jews. Uh, it's true, most of them did not do it for, uh, for uh, ideology, but they did it for money or for personal interest. Uh, but does it make them less responsible? Well, it could be discussed. Um, but still, the role of the Italians in the Holocaust has been really forgotten for many years. And still, it's a topic that is not been issued. Because as I tried to demonstrate in my book, although we did have, in particular, starting from the 90s, the implementation of EU 
memorial policies. So we had the introduction of the Holocaust Remembrance Day. We had the uh, criminalization of historical denialism. Still, all these legislation contribute to the perception of the Holocaust as a German thing. It's totally focused on the victim, which uh, the side of the perpetrator is very blurred. And this contributes to a, to a shared view that Holocaust was a very German thing, that Italy, Italy did not have to do with that, or that with Italian citizens were good people and friends of the Jews, when it was not like that. And throughout the Italian history, many people who had an, an important role in the anti-Jews legislation still had very important law, uh, roles in the Italian society. Gaetano Zaliti, who was a very important uh, scholar and judge, was the first president of the Italian Constitutional Court and died um, so in the Italian Republic and died as being still the president of the Italian Constitutional Court. And this still remember nowadays as the first president. Until a couple of years ago, inside the Italian Constitutional Court, there was a statue of, of Gaetano Zariti, which is now being conveniently taken to restorations. Uh, why was that? <clears throat> because Gaetano Zariti, yes, he was a, a very important jurist. He was the first president of the Italian Constitutional Court. But prior to that, he was the president of the so-called trib tribunal of the race, which was the tribunal that had to decide if you were Italian or if you were Jew. And if you were Jew, you had many consequences. You could not apply to, to, to university, you could not go to school, you could not, not work. There were a lot of discrimination and <clears throat> the consequences that we all know. And this has been conveniently forgotten. Can you say more about the trial of Eric Priebke? What does it teach us in the context of your research? So, um, yeah, the trial of Eric Priebke, uh, which, as I said before, uh, was found in the 90s uh, by the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Argentina and then extradited to Italy for its role in the Adatina Cave massacre. Uh, teaches a lot about the difference between law on the books and law in practice, because the law that was applied in the 90s by, um, by the military courts in, in the previous case was the same that was applied after the war in the Kapler case. But uh, although the, the law on the book was the same, the the, the spirit of the judges, the sensibility of the judges toward international crime was completely different in the 90s. So uh, in the post-world era, we have a very incorrect application of the, of the existing law, which was very influenced by the culture of the judges, by the military court of the judges, by the political uh, moment in which it took place in the 90s. There was no doubt that Pripke, there was no, I mean, yes, there were doubts. It was one complicated path, but in the end, there was no doubt that, prior, that Pripke could not be justified on the basis of the superior order 
for having killed 335 innocent people uh, as a reprisal, as he said, for uh, for the uh, killing of 32 German SS. So uh, it shows that because, uh, and that's the correct application of the norms that were enforced even after the war, that you can't invoke superior order as a justification when the order that you have to apply is manifestly criminal, as in this case. But the Pribke trial is also relevant because uh, it tells us uh, it was the moment in which the armoire of shame was found. Actually, people were looking for some evidence in order to prosecute Pripke, and they found this cab wooden cabinet that contained 695 files documenting World War II, and, um, and that led to the reopening of this belated experience of prosecution of Nazi crimes in Germany, in Italy, sorry, that lasted until 90, until 2013. Uh, so I think it's very, it was a very relevant turning point. What is your book's contribution to the study of collective memory? Oh, well, uh, this is a very um, interesting and complicated question. Um, I try to say just this. Uh, even the notion itself of um, of uh, collective memory is difficult. There are contrasting understanding of what uh, collective memory means. What I try to show you in the book is that is the limits of criminal law uh, that nowadays is seen as the solution to all kinds of problems. Criminal law is never the right tool to understand complexity. Criminal law, well, it's a simplifying tool that was created for a very specific aim to uh, prove the uh, responsibility of one person on the basis of given norms of given of a given crime and of given rules on evidence and for example the fact that the evidence should be proved uh, beyond um, reasonable doubt so there are specific standards that are functional to the specific aim for which the criminal trial was created it is not a tool that can be used for everything. It's not a tool that was created to reconstruct the complexity of the uh, historical truth. So yes, it can be useful, but don't forget that in this context, uh, the individual actions, it's always connected to a social, political major scenario. So yes, criminal law can be very useful, to um, highlight individual responsibility. There was the revolution of Nuremberg. Uh, no matter the, 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 the framework, it's you who kill the people, it's you who commit terrible crimes. But it is very good in doing that, in simplifying and putting a label to the individual responsibility, to the individual accountability for one specific action. But when it comes to the major framework, to which this action is connected, criminal law cannot be enough. So it can provide a contribution when there is criminal law, but when we need to give up to criminal law and punishment and criminal justice, 
in for other social goals, this cannot be seen as an excuse. Criminal law is not the solution and is not the only solution. So we, it's the society that has to um, that has to be uh, responsible for um, that has to be responsible for this social and cultural process of dealing with the past. It's what in German scholarship they call uh, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which is much more which is much more uh, complex than just um, than just uh, how can I say than just prosecuting people, just establishing individual responsibility. This social and cultural process is much uh, is much more um, more uh, more complex but necessary. It's easier to delegate to the judge, uh, but this is not enough. Um, I will try to end up with, with a dilemma that results from this consideration. Um, the population on its majority does not reason on the basis of history and its complexity, but it relies, relies on the simplifications provided by collective memories that are always a simplification of reality. Um, in Germany, for example, the Nuremberg trials somehow worked precisely as a simplification. But the main question is, how can we carry out the necessary operation? How do we intersect, uh, that is, the critical reasoning of history with collective memory without incurring the abuse of memory? And this is, in my opinion, the open challenge for those who want to deal with uh, memory studies uh, at these moments. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since com completing this book? What have you worked on subsequently or what have you been focusing on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just was thinking uh, because there are various various aspects that I'm, that I'm working on right now. Uh, one aspect that I think it's uh, interesting for those who are listening is still connected to the topic of the book. Um, so I should mention this. After the book came out, there's been a so resurgence in 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 Italy of the um, of the confrontation with Germany in relation to civil compensation for Nazi crimes. Um, Italy uh, has been fighting in the, since the nineties uh, for this for this cause. Actually, not the Italian government, but the Italian jurisprudence. Uh, there, it's a very interesting or complicated story that starts with these belated uh, trials. Uh, in these belated trials, Italian judges uh, condemn Germany to pay for civil compensation to the victims of, of the Nazi crimes in Germany. Uh, there's been, Germany has resorted to the International Court of Justice. The International Court of Justice ruled in favor of Germany. Then the Italian Constitutional Court said that in Italy, our constitution prevails over the decision of the International Court of Justice. So the things went on, uh, tried to summon up, 
last year there was an attempt just like after the book came out attempt of some judges to um to um to try to distrain uh, uh, some goods of Germany, in particular school and uh, some other buildings, uh, in order to to obtain this money for compensation, because Germany never paid spontaneously. This led again to a confrontation and to a case before the International Court of Justice, and to a case before the international before the National Constitutional Court. Uh, and in most recent months, the Italian government provided for a very weird solution that in order to avoid fights with Germany, the Italian government decided to step in and to pay in place of Germany all the money that it's owned by Germany to the victim of Nazi crime in Italy. So we have this very original situation now that we don't have any fund for the victim of fascist crimes, but we have a fund that is established by Italy with Italian money for the victim of Nazi crimes, so German crimes committed in Italy. It's a very interesting situation, still is on paper because it's not effective, so this, this fund does not work yet, but it's all taking place right now um, I wrote an article about this in the Journal of International Criminal Justice, if you're interested. And But it's still evolving, and that's something I've been focusing on, besides uh, other criminal law stuff that not really have to do with, uh, with transitional justice. So that's what, I, what I'm doing right now, and uh, at the same time, I'm a bit busy with all my students here in in Turin, I'm very happy with my course, courses of criminal law and transitional justice to national and international students. And um, that's basically my situation now. So I'm, I'm very happy about it. <laughs> as we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am signing off as Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in History podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Paolo Caroli. It has been my hallowed honor to have this conversation with you. It has really absolutely meant the world to me. And I'd like to end by conveying how much this privilege has meant to me from the bottom of my heart. I cannot thank you enough for your wisdom, for your expertise, for your knowledge, and for your thoughtful, thorough, and considerate answers throughout today's dialogue. I owe you my gratitude and my humility, and again, can hardly thank you enough for everything you've devoted to us during the course of this dialogue. Thank you again. Thank you again. No, thank you, Ari, really, that for the super, super kind words. And thanks for having me. It's been really a privilege and a honor. And I hope we get other chances to, to discuss together. As we end today, I'm again, Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books Network in the New Books and History podcast channel. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Paolo Caroli. He is lecturer of criminal law in the Faculty of Law 
at the University of Turin in Italy. We have been discussing his newly published book, Transitional Justice in Italy and the Crimes of Fascism and Nazism, published by Routledge 2022. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.